out your message outline. Hopefully it says Daniel in the lion's den. And Susan, I think I should return this to you before I forget it. But I think it's very cool. We're in Daniel chapter 6. We are going chronologically. We were in 9 last week. We're jumping back to 6 this week. And uh, this is a fairly long passage, so we're going to read it as we go through it. I'm not going to take the time to read it, uh, the whole thing now, but we will read it as we go through it. So you want to open to Daniel 6 in your Bibles. You can read along uh, in your outline as we go through. Uh, this was one of my favorite uh, Bible stories growing up, although sometimes I was rooting for the lions. Um, hey, you know, I was a little kid. Boys think that's cool. You know, they... Uh, and I had an Uncle Joe, who really wasn't my uncle, but I didn't find that out until I was like a senior in high school. Um, he was good friends with my grandfather, and he married my parents. And he was a uh, Presbyterian uh, minister. Um, and he was the best Bible storyteller that I've ever heard. And, uh, and so I would hear these stories from my Uncle Joe, and uh, he was just one of those guys that you just thought he just knew God a little bit better than all the rest of us. Um, but he would tell these stories that would put you right in the den with the lions, and it was great. And I thought if I ever get uh, to be able to tell stories as good as Uncle Joe, I would consider that a success. So we've come to one of those passages today, and before we get into it, uh, and I'm sure I won't, uh, I don't tell stories as good as Uncle Joe did, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll come in and see what we can learn from this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we've come to your word, and today we find a favorite passage of many people, yet a passage that we consistently fail to fully understand. So, Lord, open our ears to truly hear. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, use this passage to help us know what it means to pray and what it means to have faith and why we desperately need both. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Twelve years ago, there was a Mel Gibson movie uh, by the title Conspiracy Theory. In this movie, uh, Mel Gibson played a, a New York City taxi driver named Jerry Fletcher, who was an outspoken critic of the government. And he had conspiracy theories for everything, from aliens to political assassinations. And he made up these complicated scenarios of conspiracies and then published them in a newsletter, which he sent out to five people. And then one of these conspiracy theories seems to actually be true. Without giving away key parts of the plot or the story, he becomes convinced that he's now the personal target of an elaborate government plot demonstrating the truth of the old saying, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. <laughs> and yet the movie also casts light on the true mental illness of paranoia. 
People who suffer uh, from this don't necessarily see delusions or hear voices. Their perceptions of what's, what's happening may be perfectly normal. Rather, the disorder stems from a mistaken understanding of why these particular events are happening. They see a helicopter pass overhead, and they conclude that it's part of a secret government plot to monitor their movements. Or they see in a, man in, a man in a restaurant uh, look their way, and they automatically assume that he's plotting to kill them. And the helicopter and the man are both real, but their significance is completely misunderstood. And the paranoid man wrongly thinks that people are plotting to hurt him, and there's dangers lurking behind every bush. And as a result, his life is racked with fear and worry. But here we're in the book of Daniel, and it's pretty obvious that Daniel's life could be described as the reverse of paranoia. He lived in a a world which there really were people out to get him, and there really were regular conspiracies against him, and he really was constantly threatened uh, by the danger of physical harm. And yet Daniel seems sort of nonchalant about it. Just the opposite of Jerry Fletcher, who saw conspiracy where there was none. Daniel sees actual conspiracy, and there's real danger, and yet he exhibits a peace with his circumstances that's just remarkable. And it's not like he failed to understand the world around him. He knew he was living in a dangerous world, a world filled with lions, not all of whom were caged in pits. And yet, at the same time, Daniel had a true understanding of why these things were happening, and most importantly, who was in control. Daniel knew that his God was sovereign, even over the most fearsome dangers that roamed the world. And as a result, he's able to experience a profound peace in the midst of his trials and tribulations, just as if life was going along rather smoothly. And so if we want to have peace like Daniel, and if we're going to be able to trust that everything actually will work out for good in the end, in spite of the adversity and the disappointment that seems to enter our life on a regular basis, then I think we had best learn the lessons that this chapter has to offer us. So with that in mind, let's continue our study of the book of Daniel. Since we're not following this uh, in chapter order, but chronologically, we've skipped back to chapter 6. Last week, we took a look at how Daniel survives all these years in the midst of a powerful, idolatrous culture. And this week, we're going to see what enables him to do that. And the first thing we see is the pilgrim life of Daniel. The pilgrim life of Daniel, the first five verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom." Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, 
we shall not find any ground for complaining against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So you see the conspiracy begins. We need to get Daniel. But the first thing we see here is that Daniel has learned how to live as a pilgrim. From the beginning of this book, from his arrival in Babylon in chapter 1 when he was a teen, Daniel has spent his life in this culture, but not of this culture. On the one hand, he never withdrew from the Babylonian culture to avoid getting stained by it. On the other hand, he has, in fact, now served the Babylonian empire faithfully for some 70 years. And even after Babylon's taken over by the Persians, he continues to serve faithfully. Belshazzar has been replaced by Darius, but Daniel kept serving. And according to our text, Daniel served the empire so well that he keeps getting promoted. And now he's one of the key leaders in the entire empire. And even while he served these foreign empires, he's never shaped by their values. Now, corruption is a major concern in the world today. Uh, But it seems it was just as rampant in the ancient Near East. And yet, Daniel's life was so free of corruption and negligence, his enemies can't find anything to use against him, even after searching diligently. Now, think about that. We're certainly familiar in our own day with the kind of scrutiny that takes place whenever someone's nominated for office in our country. There's been several people uh, nominated to serve in the new administration that have had to withdraw from consideration after some skeleton in their closet comes to light. But I was wondering, I was thinking about that, and I wonder, how many of us have lives that can withstand that kind of scrutiny? Indeed, if we were the ones that were under the microscope, would the investigators come back with empty hands and say, sorry, you might as well stop digging for dirt on this person. His life is utterly above reproach. That's what Daniel's enemy said about Daniel. They looked and they dug. They couldn't find anything. And they recognized that they weren't going to find anything wrong in his life unless, they said, we find it in connection with the law of his God. If there's no corruption, if there's no lack of integrity, well, let's use his religion against him. And so we see Daniel's goodness doesn't win him any friends. Quite the contrary. His faithfulness to God earns him powerful enemies. Some sought to bring him down, probably because they're jealous of his success. Others turned against him, perhaps because of his... uh, incorruptibility, and it limited their own ability to manipulate the system for their own personal gain. Truth is, we live in a hostile world, and we not only need to recognize that, we need to be prepared for it. The Apostle Paul warned the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 3, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He also told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect opposition as just a simple fact of life. Believers around the world know this from their own experience, and we try to highlight that 
several times a year. In November, we do the Pray for the Persecuted Church Sunday. We've sent Amory and Marcy off to uh, such vacation hotspots as Myanmar and Cambodia, and we like them. Imagine where we'd send them if we didn't like them. Probably Washington. (laughs) Yet here in this prosperous and supposedly tolerant West, we've come to expect our lives as Christians to run smoothly and successfully, I mean, at least if we're professing to follow Jesus. And we think that phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, means that we shouldn't experience any form of unpleasantness. And yet, as I read the Bible, it seems that unpleasantness is part and parcel of the Christian life. God never promises easy. He has lots of promises in the Scripture. Easy isn't one of them. Persecution is. Persecution and hardship come to us in a variety of forms and from all directions, and yet we're told that these are things that are supposed to mark our life as Christians in a fallen world. They're supposed to mark our life. That may come uh, as mockery or isolation at school. It may come as conflict or trouble at work. It may simply mean that you're regarded by others as peculiar and strange. But one way or another, we should expect to suffer for the sake of Christ. I was reading this week, uh, David Wayne is a PCA pastor up near Baltimore, and uh, he's battling cancer right now, and it's been pretty tough times for him. And he blogs about his fight with cancer regularly, and since he's one of the best-known Christian bloggers in this country, lots of people have been following along. And in light of what I was studying about Daniel and about suffering this week, his recent post really hit home. Listen to what he wrote. I'm going to read what he wrote uh, just the other day. He said, A friend and I were recently talking about the trials of life, and we were discussing the lessons learned from trials and how we would like to learn those lessons and get them over with, and thus have an end to the trials. I got to thinking about this later and realized that such thoughts demonstrate a deficient view of suffering. The thinking goes that God sends trials to teach us a lesson, and thus we should expect relief once the lesson is learned. When the trial continues beyond what we expected or hoped, we wonder what's wrong with us. We must not have learned enough from them. So we apply ourselves that much harder to learning from the trials in hopes that they'll be relieved. But it occurs to me such a view does not comport well with reality. One of Francis Schaeffer's famous tests of the validity of any worldview is that a true worldview fits with reality. And the problem is, is that some suffering leads to more suffering. And it can't be that the sufferer is always obstinate and unlearning in such a situation. Further, some suffering ends in death, not deliverance from the trial. Certainly the case with believers throughout the centuries who've suffered for their faith. I'm thinking particularly of modern believers in places like China, whose suffering seems to lead only to further suffering. It can hardly be said that Jesus needed to learn a lesson from the cross, the learning of which would have terminated the experience of the cross. So with that in mind, we need to expand our understanding of God's purposes in suffering. 
I'll issue one caveat on this. I don't mean to deny that suffering is a great teacher, maybe the greatest teacher a Christian will ever have. It wouldn't be far off the mark to think of it as a means of grace. I know that I'm certainly trying to pay close attention to what God is teaching me through my recent trials. He has two very severe forms of cancer. And he, and he ends, he says, so while acknowledging that suffering has a teaching focus in the life of a believer, I think we ought to expand our view of suffering to see it as a means of witness. I know that many do, but maybe this ought to be given the greater weight. Suffering is a means of witness. And I thought, you know, pilgrims know these things. Pilgrims remember these things. Pilgrims understand that the world is not our home, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised if things don't always go our way. The Apostle Peter once wrote in a quote that I have on my office wall, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And I think Daniel's life confirms those words. He's faithfully following God in a foreign land, and despite a lack of paranoia, people are, in fact, out to get him. And this sets up the conflict that's at the heart of this passage. And it's a conflict of plot versus prayer. Plot versus prayer. I know, two blanks and one line you know, kind of overdoing it there, but. Verses 6 through 11. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, notice that, all the presidents of the kingdom. So they're lying right from the start because Daniel is one of the presidents of the kingdom. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, and the governors, and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So Daniel's enemies know that in order to bring a charge against him, they would have to engineer a clash between the law of his God and the law of the state. They knew if they could put Daniel in a situation where he was forced to choose between the two, he would choose obedience to God first. And once again, this observation should be somewhat convicting uh, for us. Think about it. Daniel's enemies are confident that he would rather die than disobey God. They knew that he would go to the lions before giving up prayer. Is there anyone in our lives that would say that about us? Probably not. So Daniel's enemies convinced the king to issue a decree that for 30 days no one could petition any god or man except for the king himself on pain 
being thrown into the lion's den. Most likely, Darius viewed this as a political move rather than a religious one, a means of uniting the kingdom by identifying himself as the sole mediator between God uh, and man, between the people and the gods. And so it functioned somewhat in the same way as Nebuchadnezzar's statue did. Now, there's a number of different ways in which Daniel could have responded. You or I might have rushed before the king to protest the unfairness of the new law. Perhaps we'd go home in tears to complain about it. When Daniel hears about the new law, he continues to do what he's always done. Three times a day was his habit to go to his room to pray, kneeling down and giving thanks, facing Jerusalem. Now, if he's in Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, facing Jerusalem would be facing to the west. Now, the king's decree is that nobody could make a petition to anybody but the king. The king is Persian, which would be to the east, modern-day Iran. So he's actually facing 180 degrees away. There's actually a physical lesson of facing away from what they said and facing towards Jerusalem. So he faces Jerusalem, kneels down, gives thanks, and in verse 10, as he had done previously. Note that phrase, as he had done previously. Daniel's an old guy now, perhaps 85. And for 85 years, or however many, maybe 80 years, he's prayed three times a day. I did the math and I asked myself, how many times would Daniel have prayed if he prayed three times a day for 85 years? The answer comes out to just over 93,000 prayers. No wonder he simply went back to his room and started praying. An 85-year habit is hard to break. And he wasn't about to stop praying because some plotting princes threatened his life. After all, he's 85. He's not going to live forever anyway. He's not afraid to die. So when they tricked Darius into signing this 30-day law, Daniel just goes ahead with his daily routine. No big deal. Went home, knelt down, faced toward Jerusalem, offered his prayers to God. And he did it knowing that his adversaries would catch him. Now, lest it be thought a small thing to pray three times a day, consider this. At Potomac Hills, we have over 200 people who attend every Sunday. Suppose each of us decided to pray three times a day. That would total almost a quarter of a million prayers offered to God by our congregation each and every year. And if all of us begin to pray on a regular basis, this volume of prayers going to heaven would dramatically increase, and I think we would see some remarkable answers from God. But what I find really remarkable here in Daniel 6 is not that this latest crisis drove him to his knees, but that it didn't disrupt his regular habit of prayer. Going to his knees was something he did anyways. He didn't hide himself away to pray. The text doesn't tell us he cried out to God about this latest injustice. It just says he gave thanks just like he normally did. He's facing imminent death. He knows his enemies will surely see him and use his prayers against him. And yet Daniel's on his knees giving thanks. Not sure that's exactly what I would have been doing. Lord, you see all those bad guys out there? 
Do something with them. It's not what it says. It's not what Daniel does. And I think that's a good test of our prayer life. How much of your time and energy in prayer is spent complaining about your circumstances and asking for things to be different versus how much time is spent giving thanks for God's overwhelming goodness? The more clearly we see who God is and the great things he's done for us, the more consistently we'll focus on thanking him, regardless of our personal circumstances at the time. And apparently the focus of Daniel's prayer life, which we saw last week in Daniel 9, was pleading that God would show mercy on his land and on his temple, which now lay desolate. However, in view of what's about to happen, it must appear to Daniel that his prayer is not going to be answered. The plotters come. They find him praying, just as he always did. Since Daniel prayed this way, somewhat publicly, it says he opened the windows, um, and they did it three times a day. It doesn't take a great deal of skill to catch him. Let's go over to Daniel's, hang outside the window. It's just a matter of time. Surely God could have closed their eyes just as easily as he later closed uh, the mouths of the lions so Daniel could pray without hindrance. But God's purpose was not to save Daniel from trials, but to save Daniel through trials. God's purpose was not to save Daniel from trials, but to save Daniel through trials. Just as it was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are lessons here that Daniel and all those around him needed to learn, lessons that could only be learned by going into the lion's den. And that's an important lesson for us as well. God is not committed to our comfort. He's not committed to making our path smooth. He's committed to sanctifying us and demonstrating his own glory in and through us. And oftentimes that commitment means subjecting these earthen vessels, these jars of clay, as Jed mentioned earlier, to pressures that would surely shatter us were not his grace sufficient. The Lord will take you into the eye of the storm if for no other reason to show you that he's the master of the storm and that he can make sure that you're fragile vessel makes it safely to the other shore. His wonderful plan for your life is to sanctify you through trials and tribulations. Again, listen to the Apostle Peter. See, he confirms this truth, 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And trials and tribulations are exactly what Daniel faces. And we see that in next, verses 12 through 16. I think that's a typo in your outline. It should be 12 through 16, the prosecution of Daniel. The prosecution of Daniel, starting at verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, 
pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king. You hear that? By agreement. It's the third time. So this is an actual conspiracy against Daniel. They've gotten together and agreed what they're going to do. It says, These men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now the king figures out what's going on. His advisors have manipulated him to ask, act against Daniel. And he's sorry about putting his faithful and honest servant in this position, and he seeks a way to rescue Daniel from this fate. But he can't see a way out of it without losing face, without sacrificing his own credibility among the leaders in his empire. And so Darius abandons Daniel to his fate in the lion's den. And yet Darius' last words to Daniel point to another source for help. The end of verse 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Which brings us to the next point in the story, which is the preservation of Daniel. Verses 17 through 24, the preservation of Daniel. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. Sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That was my favorite part when I was a kid. <laughs> kind of a sick, warped. But here comes the irony in this story. The story is contrasting the experience of Darius and Daniel during the night. Darius returns to his palace where he spends a sleepless and harried night, unable to enjoy any of the usual comforts of a king, at dawn, he hurries, uh, gets up, hurries to the lion's den, crying out for Daniel as he arrives. Meanwhile, Daniel responds to the king's troubled cry, as calm and peaceful as if he spent the night in his own fluffy bed, rather than with the lions. Verse 21, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. So contrary to all expectations, 
Daniel spent a far more comfortable night in the smelly lion's den than the king did, even though he was surrounded by royal luxury. You can almost imagine Daniel's leaning back against the soft, warm, furry lion, <laughs> talking with the angel about heavenly things. You know, what's heaven like? Tell me about it. Must be neat. You know, his lodging turns out to be a den of angels rather than a den of lions, since the angels shut the mouths of the lions and kept Daniel safe. Meanwhile, Darius, who has every pleasure the ancient world has to offer, and couldn't enjoy any of them. And Daniel has nothing except the presence of God and enjoys a good night's rest. It's a vivid picture that our peace doesn't come from possessions, but peace comes from the presence of God. And it's not as though the lions aren't capable of eating anybody. Those who falsely accused them were tossed in. And just because I love this part, I'm going to read it again. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And what we see is that the heavenly court is the only one whose decision really counted. The Most High God holds the true power of life and death, not any earthly king. And in telling the king of his own innocence, Daniel's just living up to his name, which means my God is the judge. And God did, in fact, answer his prayers and show him mercy while the conspirators' fate demonstrates that they had been judged and found guilty by God, not just the earthly king, thus confirming the justice of their death sentence. But the story doesn't end there. There's one more lesson out there, and we learn this from the lips of King Darius, who understands what has happened, and it results in the king giving praise for the king. The king giving praise for the king. Verse 25 to the end. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now we see that Darius himself, one of the great kings of the ancient world, is forced to confess that the king who truly lives forever, remember every time they addressed the king, what did they say? Oh, king, live forever. Well, the king who actually does live forever is the God of heaven, not the rulers of the earth. And in response to Daniel's deliverance, Darius issues a counter-decree nullifying his original decree. And in this new decree, he commands people to fear and reverence the God of Daniel, the living God who is able to deliver and rescue and save. And the Lord has once again brought the ruler of the mightiest empire to acknowledge his greatness and his power as well as the fact that his kingdom is the only one that truly will last forever. This rounds off the story of Daniel's life. And it puts his experience in the lion's den into the broader context. It reminds us Daniel's entire life was spent in exile. And yet as the closing note of chapter 6 reminds us, 
uh, God preserved him alive and well throughout the whole time, enabling him to prosper under successive kings until the time of King Cyrus. When Daniel's prayers for Jerusalem finally begin to be answered. King Cyrus is God's chosen instrument to bring about the Jews' return from exile. He issues a decree that they could return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem, a story we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, and which we find referred to in 2 Chronicles, the very end of 2 Chronicles. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by, word of the, Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And we have this decree that the people... The Jews in exile can now leave and return and go home. And the exile will be over. Now, as far as we know, Daniel never returned home to his beloved Judah. His reward would have to wait until the heavenly kingdom, until the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet, in the experiences of Daniel and his three friends, God demonstrated that he could keep his people safe in the midst of their enemies. Life in exile would never be easy, nor would it ever be home. However, through the faithfulness of God, it was possible for his people to survive as strangers in a strange land and as aliens in exile, serving the empire, yet looking forward to the city yet to come. And this is how Daniel 6 addresses us. For we too are strangers in a strange land, getting stranger all the time, both us and the land. We're living as aliens in this world. And we should learn from Daniel's experience that the world in which we live is in fact a dangerous place. This world is not our home, and it never will be. And therefore, in the midst of our greatest suffering, even persecution, we can have a peace that astounds the world, for the Lord holds both us and our oppressors in his hand. But does Daniel 6 really give us a true picture of persecution and suffering? Isn't it true that for every Daniel whom God delivers from the lion's den, there have been hundreds and thousands of nameless martyrs whom God didn't deliver? Haven't faithful Christians suffered tremendously over the years and are still suffering today? Where is God in those situations? Are those believers less faithful to God or less important to God than Daniel was? And to answer that question, we need to see how Daniel 6 gives us more than a model on how God deals with suffering. It's more than an example of how to stand, stand firm when our faith is tested. I think in order to answer those hard questions, we have to understand that Daniel 6 is a foreshadowing in history of the verdict that will be delivered on all believers on that great and final judgment day of the Lord. That's because it's a foreshadowing of the cross. 
Daniel endured the test of the lion's den, emerging safely out on the other side because God judged him and found him not guilty. However, those unbelievers who plotted against Daniel were found guilty, and they were crushed by the judgment of God, literally. And on the last day, all those who are in Adam will be found guilty and will share their fate, while all those who are in Christ will be found not guilty and will share his fate. And it shows us how Jesus fulfilled Daniel 6. Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies and brought before a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who unsuccessfully sought to deliver him before handing him over to a violent death. And like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and his body placed in a sealed pit so his situation couldn't be changed by human intervention. But Jesus went even deeper than Daniel because he didn't merely face the threat of death, he faced death itself. And although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty, and there was no angel to comfort him with the presence of God. On the contrary, he was left alone and abandoned, suffering the fate that we deserved. And yet Jesus' experience was itself a foreshadowing of the final judgment a declaration ahead of time of the verdict of the heavenly court. Jesus died for our sins, not his. So ultimately, death had no power over him. Jesus didn't remain in the grip of the tomb, but God raised him from the dead precisely because the heavenly court found him not guilty. And what is more, when Jesus emerged from the tomb on that first Easter morning, he brought with him God's stamp of acquittal, not only for himself, but for all those who, by faith, are in union with Christ. When Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty company of people who've been redeemed from the pit through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And whoever believes in Jesus will receive the same verdict from the heavenly court that he did, for his righteousness will be counted as theirs. And the people that Jesus redeemed through his death and resurrection aren't super believers like Daniel. Most of us are ordinary sinners, people who constantly cave in to the unrighteous demands of the empire. And yet it doesn't look like this motley crew has much to commend it. Yet even someone as deeply sinful as you and as me can be found beautiful before a holy and perfect God because he sees the end of the process. He sees the glorious church that he promises to present to himself without flaw or blemish. My salvation, your salvation, rests not on our ability to dare to be a Daniel, but solely on the perfect obedience of Christ in my place. And in the midst of trials and temptations, that is where my comfort is to be found, in the finished work of Christ. And for that, his grateful people said, Amen. Amen. Think about what Christ has done for you and then thank him in prayer. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.